0: Support for this podcast is provided by Cosmic, a Portland-based agency consisting of technologists, storytellers, and strategists who help nonprofits and B Corps quickly grow revenue and impact. Start growing your mission-driven organization with Cosmic at amplifypdx.com. Support for this podcast is also provided by the PDX Executive Assembly, a membership of leaders from Portland companies. Led by executives from the Trailblazers, Adidas, Yakima, and more, the Assembly's curated cohorts of executives serve to accelerate leadership development and build a meaningful network of peers, free from press and sales solicitation. Join now at pdxexecutiveassembly.com. on the new season of the podcast. This is our second episode of the new season. Gosh, I've been doing this for for five years. And if you've been uh, following along, you know, I'm a total nerd about startups, investing, and what's going on in Oregon. So really excited to have Robert Pease and Julie Harrelson from the Cascade Seed Fund on the show. Hey, Robert and Julie, thanks for joining.
1: Hey, thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, it's great to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I think I I mentioned I've had some of your portfolios companies on throughout the year. So it's great to to, take your side of things and see what's going on in the investment world. So a good place to start is love for you just to introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about, you know, Cascade Seed Fund.
1: Julie Harrelson. And it's great to be here. Um, So my background is lifetime entrepreneur, some fantastic failures, some good successes. (laughs) And I decided to start an angel fund in Oregon a number of years ago, and then realized that there was really a need for a seed stage venture fund. And uh, Robert and I met up about that time.
2: Yeah, so I'm Robert Pease, the uh, other half of the small but mighty team at Cascade Seed Fund. So Julie and I are both partners there. And yeah, Julie was um, kind of running this angel group out of Bend and um, we actually got to know each other through a through a mutual investment that, that, that we had made and just, got together and kind of decided the world maybe needed another uh, seed fund, but one kind of unique and focused Yeah, and kind of came, you know, to where we are today from that. My background is, as Julie's is on the operating side of okay. a lot of failure. So we always try to tell our founders if like, we've seen. Yeah. We haven't seen everything, but we've seen a lot and yeah, all the bad parts, um, <laughs> as well as some of the good, right? So I think that yeah. that creates a situation where we are able to do what we do here, you know, and, and try to kind of pay it forward a little bit of, mm-hmm. of, you know, sometimes I tell folks that, you know, we've kind of got a little personal and professional vendetta about fundraising. Mm. Very hard. It's very difficult. It's very confusing. If you're a first time founder, you've never done it before and you shouldn't know how to do it because you've never done it before. And so that's not a negative signal. Um, right. Yeah. So it's, that's
0: a little bit about what we're all about. Well, I think it's a good place to start uh, for people who maybe are not familiar with kind of the stages. I know you threw out Angel, there's Seed, and kind of more venture. So do you mind kind of going over a little bit? What that mix is, or if uh, are those walls maybe completely broken down now? I, I don't know.
1: I think that everybody uses the phrases slightly differently. What what we think of as a, a very early stage company is a, a concept stage, mm-hmm. uh, where it's it's an idea that somebody has that they want to turn into something. Seed um, stage is a little bit further along, where there's some momentum. You know, they have Robert likes to say they built something they've built something that people beyond their friends and family, you know, (laughs) care about and, and their people are, who are willing to pay for it. Mm -hmm. So that would be the seed stage. Um, the difference between angel and VC, and Robert, you might want to elaborate on this too, but angels are, are typically high net worth individuals who do various kinds of early stage investing and they either, they can do it on their own. They can pool resources, or they can join a fund, and in in the case of Cascade Angels, uh, we started a fund. Okay. Um, and and as that evolved, I had you know had some key learnings, and so when Robert came along, we were like, you know, we could really optimize our decision making and grow this in a different way if we join forces.
2: Yeah, and as what well said, the I think from an investor standpoint, the difference between angel versus fund is it's it's sort of like stock picking, right? You can go out and mm. you can buy. In the public equities market. you can do your own research and you think Microsoft's a good buyer or whatever it is, or you can, you know, delegate that essentially to a fund manager that runs a mutual fund is going to pick those stocks and pay attention for you. And so, you know, our view, you know, that given the risk profile of this really early stage stuff, you really benefit from a lot of investments. So that can be very fatiguing as an individual angel because you can get into a lot of things and maybe you don't get the right diversification or you're not getting into the right deal flow. And so the right. what we come to the table with is, you know, we've been doing this a while, we've got a good reputation, we've got a strong founder network. You know, we we can bring in really good opportunities, but you know, again, you, you kind of you pay up, you pay a management fee for that, right? So that yeah is sort of the, the, the difference there. I think back to the stage definition question, and Julie alluded to it, everyone's got a different definition on this. And, and you know, getting hung up on them, I'm doing a, an angel round, or I'm doing a pre-seed round, or a seed round, or a seed plus round. There's all sorts mm. of things to, build to the <laughs> founder. You know, we, we sort of tried to break it down to the, to the three boxes point that Julie had made, right? Can you build it, which means something exists, right? Does anybody care, right? Yeah. Which means you've gotten it in the hands of who you think may be a user group or a potential customer. And then the third box is: Does anybody care enough to pay? And so the, mm. the difference between pre-seed and seed for us is box one and two: pre-seed. <laughs> box three, which means you've gotten on the other side of, of revenue, is seed, and that then is how we're going to engage. You know, we are not a we're not a concept stage investor. Um, just it's just not part of our fund strategy and, and, and what we do. So, you know, I, I think that in the, the, the cost of, of getting a business up and running has gotten it still costs right, but it's not overwhelming in terms of right building something and testing it a little bit. I was talking to a company, you know, last week about they, like, we had an idea, so we just literally created a landing page and see if anybody would care to sign up, right? So all of those are just getting some signal, right? Somebody cared, they cared enough to sign up, they cared enough to come back the next day or the next week or whatever it is. And and so much of it, this stage of investing is around extrapolation, mm. <laughs> right? There, there's, there's only a certain amount that's knowable, Yeah. right? Yeah, and so let's know the things we can know and then the, the things that we can't know or not, don't know yet, then we just have to calibrate whether or not that's something that we're willing to take on as, as a risk, right? Or essentially a bet. Right. About that yeah. investment. We always articulate what's the bet here that we're all betting on.
0: Well, thanks for breaking that down. And you mentioned something about, you know, founder network. So I'm really curious. And I think a lot of people who are new maybe to pitching investors or trying to get in network with that you know, the deal flow, how does that happen? It's maybe specific to Oregon too. I know there's obviously lots of events, a lot of people just cold reaching out to you, but how do you build that network uh, from your side of the fence?
1: So you're talking about um, the deal, how we get deal flow.
0: Yeah. And how to just build a relationship with founders. Yeah, exactly.
1: An entrepreneur would build the network.
0: Uh, probably for you. I mean, for your side of yeah. fence, like, yeah, power, so,
1: well, yeah. you know, I mean, I've had uh, primarily, I'm a lifetime Pacific Northwesterner, right? So my career has been here. All the businesses I've had have been mm. in this area. And a lot of that is just having the network and having, making sure that your reputation is one that people want to <laughs> refer right. business to you, right? Following up, um, being present, being engaged in the community having successful exits, those kinds of things. We receive um, deal flow from other fund managers. We receive deal flow from entrepreneurs that we work with because they, they feel that we're easy to work with. Yeah, uh, we, we had an entrepreneur the other day say, oh, we re- I really like working with you guys. And we said, why? And he said, because we could, I can tell you the hard stuff and you won't freak out. <laughs> right? um, yeah. uh, and, and also from, from events. A lot of the events and community-based activities are really geared towards that very very early developmental stage. Professional service providers is another area where we gain mm. those kinds of referrals and sometimes we get direct pitches where people find us and they write a reasonable email and it's doesn't it's not spam. Yeah. And it's thoughtful and and we we try to look at all of those.
2: Yeah. Super important point. Like literally you can go to our website, right? And there's a button there you can push and you can upload a deck and we tell you yeah. literally what we just kind of said here in terms of what we look for. So if you meet these criteria, you know, drop us, you know, drop us a piece of information, and 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 we'll have a call. We 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 do hundreds of thirty minute phone calls, and they're not pitches, they're not presentations. They're literally about kind of trying to poke on, you know, who are you and why are you doing this, and are we a match in terms of what the expectations are. I think that's a super important thing. You know, we represent other people's money. We have a certain return profile we're looking for. It's it's never a judgment of whether or not it's a business. Right. If you can mm-hmm. sell it for more than it costs you to make it, you have a business. The, the question is, does it fit the return profile for this early stage kind of risk capital? And that's that, you know, is generally looking for a pretty significant return. Right. But, you know, we, you know, Julie and I were kind of talking about this last week or so, that this is very much a craft business. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, especially at this stage. And, and I guess everybody can kind of define that differently, but it's like you got to do the work. You know, you got to make yourself available. You got to have a lot of conversations. You have to be very comfortable saying no very quickly. The worst thing you can do to a founder is, is be nice and not, and not let them know they're progressing or not because then that wastes their time. Then you spend time building their business, not talking to investors. And so the craft aspect of this is knowing one, what we're trying to accomplish with our fund and our investors who have an expectation on us, the impact we're trying to make on the community. We think that's super yep. important. We do a lot of uh, maybe sometimes too much information share with founders about the mind of an investor and and how this could or couldn't look, or a structure of a round and some of these other things. I, I think that's a lot of inside baseball that needs to be broadly shared. Mm. And so we do our best to, uh, to sort of do that out there. But yeah, the craft aspect of this, and, and it's being open to sort of serendipity where something may not look like a thing, but all of a sudden yeah. after a conversation, right, you realize this is, this is one of these things that's a, a non-consensus point of view. And that's generally where you're going to find your greatest
0: yeah.
2: uh, outcome. Right. right? If everybody, yeah. same way, that's great. But what you're really trying to do is find a little bit of the anti-pattern. You know, and if it lines up with everything else, then then kind of back
0: it, you know, through capital and, and accelerate it. And you said you have a term I want to dig into anti, anti-pattern. What what do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah,
2: that? I, I think that, that there's there's maybe a more classic engineering definition of that, which I'm hijacking. So hopefully you won't you won't get any hate mail or hate comments <laughs> on it. I, I think that it's just about something that doesn't look like the standard it's in a space that maybe not uh, thought of as venture scale. So about 20, 25% of what we do are in consumer brands. So we do mm-hmm. a lot of software investing, but we also look at consumer brands. We love brand platforms, right? That generally start life with you know, a very passionate group of, cons- of customers they found directly. So we like the direct to consumer, but then they've got to scale kind of beyond that. And so, yeah, so, so investments in companies, um, you know, that are in that space. So, um, you know, we've got an investment, a company called Slumberkins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very much uh, in the consumer brand, strong team, um, doing extremely well. Um, and at first blush, you know, was not something maybe that would be considered a venture scalable business. And but we, we're we we are courageous, um, and we just yeah. absolutely believed in them and what they were doing. And it's you know, and they've and they've you know continued to do really really well.
1: You know, Robert, I think your your reference to the craft piece of it is is interesting because. With craft, you know, it's not, if you produce a piece of furniture or something like that, these are not mass produced items. Like these companies are very, uh, they're, they're specialized. They have uh, high quality people, right? It's like using high quality materials. Um, they have a guild of people working, right? They have great professional service providers. They are living and working, um, broad scale, whether it's remote or in their communities. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it really fits, I think, in the Pacific Northwest ethos that we would have a, have a small fund like this to, in in order to activate capital and to free up capital for people that live in this region to actually increase, um, success, both, you know, financial success, innovation, Mm -hmm. employment, um, all of these things, I think come, come from that. So, but it involves money circulating through our region, more money, more quickly circulating through our region, right. through people that are doing these innovative things to actually create the kind of environment that that we want here.
2: Yeah. And, and building on that, let's talk a little bit about fund size, uh, yeah. maybe get into yeah. nerd math a little bit here. But so we're investing out of uh, the, the the current fund is a $10 million fund. And okay. we, we'll kind of define point of view on on fund size relative to check size relative to Outcomes for the founders and for our investors, and you know we are not a lot of a lot of fund managers. You know they raise a five million dollar fund, then they raise a ten, and then they're in there at fifty, and then they're at a hundred, right? So and what happens is, is the larger the fund gets, the, the the outcome scenario you have to believe at the earliest of stages goes up and up and up, and this can become really frustrating for founders, right? Where they're like, hey, I got a great idea and I got traction, and mm. I go it's like, well, in order for this fund, in order for my investment to make money, you're going to have to become a category leading IPO candidate, right? So, like, that can happen. <laughs> uh, it's hard. It takes a long time. It's it's sort of, you know, possible but not probable, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, or low probability outcome. You know, what we have to believe on the way in with a with a small fund is, you know, that you can get to, I think in the U.S. every year, the average MA deal size, at least in software tech, is like $50 million, right? So, okay. that's a lot of money. Um, yeah. <laughs> And if and if if that's all we have to believe that you can get to that threshold, which then based on our check size and based on how our fund operates, that we can make money on those. I mean, we will absolutely take outliers, right? We, we this whole business is based on yeah. um, you know outliers, but it's also important that to get early support to founders that are building something meaningful. At least at our stage, right? We think we're very aligned with them and what they're doing, and so it's not pushing them into areas that may be wrong for the business at this stage because. Mm. Of, our incentive system on our end is sort of pushing us that direction. right? right? We, we, we know our stage. We know what we're investing to do. We're trying to either get a company to the next round um, or getting them to some sort of, you know, self-sustainability, right, that they're able then to kind of pick their path. We're not going to gum up the board of directors. We're not trying to run their business. Okay. Uh, you know, we, we uh, you know, recently as, as the macro environment uh, began to have a little turbulence, you no, know, we didn't come out with some pontification about what to do. We just basically told our founders, we've got a, an, in, an internal distribution list. We, we can email everybody, you know, we trust you to run your business. And so do that, manage your cash. I and mean, there's all these sort of things that are pretty, you know, uh, straightforward. But we're like, look, like we are certainly want to hear from you when things are great, right? But we really, really, really want to hear from you when it sucks, yeah. mm-hmm. right? When there's mm-hmm. moments of loneliness or, or self-doubt or all these things that can come up. Um, like we believe, and we know this is a squiggly line, right, to get to, uh, to kind of get to success. And so that's a, that's a, you know, every investor is going to try to talk about their value add. So we don't have giant programs and we're not going to do this, that, and the other, but like we're, we've been in the trenches. And so we understand what it's like. We can take an investor perspective on this that we think helps again, based on our stage to kind of, kind of try to guide through this ambiguity because later stage investing, series A, series B, whatever, much more spreadsheet based. Okay. Um, yeah. Because you've got a little more known, right? Mm-hmm. I know this, and I know what the margins are, and I know this, whatever. As opposed to I've got a few customers saying this solves a problem, and we think this is the relative price point. Yeah. So, so yeah, that was yeah, kind of
1: that, was, a, that was great. E- like, I mean, this this thing about calling us when you have a bad day. Uh, you know, we've had a couple of those calls <laughs> this week, honestly. And yeah. um, these are the the scenarios that were presented to us are things that we've both been through, and thought, you know, at least I I on one occasion thought my world was coming to an end and I was going to lose everything I had. And I didn't, you know, um, tough. And so we can sort of lend people our confidence and experience to say, well, here's a few things to think about. Like, we're not going to tell you what to do, but here's a few, here's a few considerations, Hmm. you know? And, uh, so, so we call this active, but not activist investing, right? Where we're really actively engaged, but we're not driving the boat.
2: Right. Yeah. That's an important point. Um, for, for the founders or aspiring founders that are listening here, right? I think in the earliest stages, you just, you just want money and you need it because that's the plan and you're trying to fundraise and, and you just need to be super thoughtful, like about who you're adding into your company, right? So if you are selling, sh- you're selling ownership of your company to an investment, mm-hmm. right? You need to think about it that way. They're going to be around for a while, this is how this works. You know, and this is risk on investing. And sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes it doesn't work out the way you want it to. That's just part of it. And um, if that's a surprise to your investors, you know, then, then you've kind of, you got the wrong groove around you.
0: And yeah.
2: I should—it's just gets back to expectations. And, and we suggest, I mean, again, we don't offer legal, accounting, financial, whatever <laughs> it is. So we like, sit down with a potential investor, ask them what success looks like. Right. And, and don't be afraid of that, which is if someone's like, well, I want to put $25,000 into your company as an angel and I want a thousand X, well, okay, that's what you're signing up for.
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: mm-hmm. Or if that's a fund, right, you know that they only want massive, massive outcomes, right? Those are great, um, but I think the expectations out of the gate is really important to to kind of understand what success looks like, just like if you're hiring somebody, you know, you're hiring a new VP of
0: sales, they should yeah.
2: ask <laughs> what does success look like, right? That,
0: yeah. And Robert, I mean, that, you're just, I really appreciate you just dropping like the knowledge here for founders, because I think a lot of these things are, you know, first time founders specifically, they don't know. I mean, they're just like, we need capital. <laughs> I'm not going to interview the, uh, the fund necessarily, but it's super helpful that those expectations, um, I know you kind of mentioned you don't pontificate on during hard times and stuff. But I'm going to kind of force you to a little bit because <laughs> <laughs> interesting environment. And when you look at the public markets, you've been around, I've been around through good and bad times the past you know, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so just what are you seeing as far as new companies being created? Do you see that go up during times like this or not or the quality of companies? going up or down or I know that's super ambiguous, but I'm just kidding. No, no, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a good, it's a relevant and timely question. Um, you got some thoughts, Julie? Oh,
1: yeah, well, I was just going to say, typically when everybody first realizes what's going on, there's a sort of a, you know, there's, yeah. a, there's a pause, but often, and in fact, during um, COVID, there were a lot of new companies that launched um, that were very high quality because people kind of assessed, reassessed what they were doing. That some people participated in the great resignation, right? And they want right. to try their thing. Um, some people have been working on something and had more time to do it during COVID with the economic environment as it is now. I think that that's, that same kind of consideration occurs. The question is, um, are there funds around to actually drive those things forward at this time? So uh, one of the things we've seen a lot of is companies that have maybe done a raise and they were going to do a larger raise, but they're doing what they're calling a momentum bridge right now, which is to okay. raise some money to get through get through this period. And so I, I always think about you know in times like this, in some ways you have to behave like a bootstrap founder if with your with your the cash that you have mm-hmm. on hand from investors, because being really really aware of what's coming in and what's going out, what your burn rate is, how much cash you have on hand. Having a period of, you know, buffer period of time to, to ride out the volatility is really important.
2: Mm. Yeah, I guess a, a couple uh, directions on this. You know, we we have always, and this is also based on an arc of many years, right, of you mm-hmm. know, experiencing the dot-com era, experiencing the great financial crisis, whatever. And you kind of realize it can go bad. And bad is not just a bad day or a week. <sighs> or things can really get upside down. So, you know, we, as part of our fund strategy and our model, right, we have a very, we're very valuation sensitive. We think entry price matters, right? And, you know, I think what we've seen, you know, in an elongated time period, but even more so in the last, let's say 12, 24 months, very, very early stage companies, right, with great ideas, the price is getting bid way up and they raise money at a $30 million valuation and it should have been five. And that's going to be difficult for them because we've we've come out of an era where there was just a an expectation and, and rightly so in a lot of cases where the next round was available, right? And so yeah. just have top quartile companies achieving the next round of, of capital. You know, you not that everybody was able to raise, but more companies continue to get funded. And I think that we may see a little bit of a washout in that, especially one mm. that are not in a position to sell their way through this, whatever this is going to be. And just that means. If you can go get a contract, close the contract, right? If you can sort of optimize your business, you know, and, and then, and, and then what happens to becomes kind of almost self-sustaining or at least line of sight to that. And then your investability goes way up. Okay. Right. Because it's not like I have to raise money because I'm going to be out of cash in six months. It's like, man, I really want to raise some money because I want to, add four more sales reps, right. And I want to do this and do this and do this. And I think if I did that, this is what would happen. Um, So yeah, I think that. You know, we may end up with a little bit of a reconciliation period here. Again, we didn't ever buy into the hype, as Julie was talking about. Right during twenty twenty, everybody you knows this thing started, and everybody was unclear about what was going to happen. Right, yeah. for the quick triage of what's our runway for, for, for portfolio companies, and then it was like, you know what? Why don't we just trust our process and continue to do what we do? And and you know, investing via Zoom was not a a new thing for us, so that was okay. a, a big a big hang up. We made a dozen investments in twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then it felt frothy and it got frothier and we made far fewer, let's just say in 2021. So we're not market timers, but you can kind of get a pulse for what's kind of going on a little bit, just kind of based on what's, what's what you're seeing and, and kind of how it's going. So, you know, uh, it was in a conversation in the last couple of weeks, I guess we keep saying that, but we had a founder and they're like, okay, we need to do this and this may change this. And, and I'm like, look, you know, entry price matters to us, but a dollar expe- but, but or two or five or a hundred, the direction is really not going to materially impact the outcome because we expect the outcome to be, you know, large or significant. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you get, but if you should be valued at, you know, $5 million on a pre money basis. Right. And again, you've raised at 30 or 40 or 50, you're, you're going to have, everyone's going to get grumpy, right. Because that's going to come down and it's hard not to think that a lot of the overvaluation, especially in the later stages, won't be because if you look at the public markets and you look at just the carnage that is happening in the technology <sighs> sector. Yeah. You know, the good the good news, bad news is private market companies um, don't get marked to market every day or every mm-hmm. day to market. But the flip side of that is I think what we've seen, especially in the venture world over the last many years, everybody high fiving and celebrating based on markups. And, you know, the only value that matters is the exit value. And so the, our, our valuation uh, approach that we use for our investors, right, is like, yes, this happened. There's a third party came in, they led around and did whatever. There's no nebulous markup. And if, if it does seem too high, right, we, we certainly factor that in and communicate that because we
0: would much rather surprise to the upside. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. The downside. And that, I, I appreciate that discipline that you've had that approach. I think it's helpful for the, the founders coming in. So a couple more things I wanted to talk about is really talent. You know, I think I had Diane from Voyager on maybe like a year and a half ago, and we talked a lot about just the remote work piece of it and how for startups, how that's coming to play. Where we're at now, um, how that's just pretty normalized uh, for founders. What are you seeing? Are they still having difficulty getting talent uh, now or has that is not really? I'm just kind of curious how things shift a little bit and this whole remote, remote work thing is really kind of stabilize it is what it is so
1: so in a few conversations we've had there's been sort of the the um, founder founders have alluded to the potential of more tech talent um, becoming available due to some you know adjustments in the workforce Mm. but I haven't I haven't necessarily seen it you know with with those positions that are really hard to hire for haven't necessarily seen it up completely yet let's okay. say so okay. um, it's the other the other piece of it is people can stay living where they're living, but in some places where um, where people need to be co-resident or or closer to the team um, there there can be challenges with having inbound folks uh, because of housing costs or other issues, right so mm. there's that piece as well.
2: Uh, yeah. So a huge fan of Diane. She's great. I, I don't know how, well, I guess there's a talent question and there's like the remote work question. I think that yeah. the talent question is, again back to things that you try to suss out at the early stage and you make an investment is, is this founder or this founding team, right? Can they attract more talent, right? Life's about opportunity cost. You work on one thing and you don't get to work on something else. So I think whether the labor market is tight or or not, you know, that, that, that is prevailing. So I th- I think on the remote side of this, you know, we, we kind of talk about our strategy and that's Oregon first, right? And then Pacific Northwest interested, right? Because <laughs> I love that. In, in Generally, what we're looking for is like, you don't have to have, you know, 50 people in a room, right? In, in downtown Portland, you know, uh, we generally like to have somebody with a pulse in the region. Uh, and, and mostly that's to keep us sane in terms of the deal flow we look at and that where we spend our time again, because we're back to the craft aspect of this. We spend a lot of time doing our best to talk to as many people as we possibly can. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think if you were like, uh, like software engineering is a, is something you could do in a distributed way because it's sort of an individual contributor, although it does roll up to whatever, but mm-hmm. like, you know, if, if you're a sales development team, like that's really hard to do completely distributed, right? There's some value to having people together, especially when you get a door slammed in your face, right? <sighs> so whether that's back to everybody in the office or that sort of clusters of work, right? In certain areas where workers are, 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 are um that may be it i think customer support customer service is another one of those where i think there's some benefit from being around each other cuz just cuz it's on the slack channel doesn't necessarily mean you're getting all of the the resident knowledge right of a right. uh, resolution or how to handle things and in in our in our view as well right we we never even pre covid thought everybody needed to be in the same building and again this goes back to like okay if what you're trying to do is heavy heavy collaborative it's more difficult if everybody's not Around, I think at the earliest stages when you're still trying to figure stuff out, it really helps to have everybody, maybe not every day, right, but get together. We've had a couple of uh, portfolio companies that are sort of like, well, we don't want an office every day, mm-hmm. but if in the office two days a week or three days a week, and then there's another portfolio company that has the same mindset, and then they're able to go in on a space.
0: Yeah. So they've
2: yeah. got dedicated space that they can get together but also we all know there's there's some benefit to just absolute production that you can do when you're by yourself as opposed to being in an office in the same way that there's absolutely a performance lift that comes from being around your coworkers. Yeah. So I
0: don't know, that's a lot of word salad, right? <laughs> <laughs> in terms of how all this- kind of- No, I, I appreciate it because I think everybody is trying to figure it out, let's just be honest, right? And you see the rise of some companies seeing that as an opportunity. I mean, obviously there's one here locally called Radius, you might know of who yep. they're kind of doing the uh, helping that piece of it, bring people together uh, on that occasional, kind of occasional basis. So I do want to, I love to learn about call out some companies that you're excited about, that whether they're in your portfolio now or or not, and maybe some you know industries you see ripe for kind of uh, disruption or getting good investments here. I know you focus on you know specific couple with maybe B to, you kind of straddle b2c and b2b B a little bit it sounds like so yeah, yeah. Well, this is always the danger of talking about your portfolio companies right <laughs> <laughs> i think it's a child right we love we love yeah, yeah. All, all
2: our children infinitely or love our sure. companies I, infinitely
1: and i think i think we can just talk about some examples to mm. give give people a, an idea of the diversity of the portfolio so this is a global stat about tw- 75% are technology companies right and the other 25% are consumer brands and in terms of consumer brands, one interesting one um, now is called Hest. Mm. And Hest is disrupting sleep in a good way, right? So uh, a guy, uh, Aaron Ambruski, I think that's how you pronounce his that's last name, name. Um, was is enough. a former <laughs> uh, designer out of K2 and okay. developed this bed that's sort of like next generation thermo for car camping, slumber parties, they have a, a dog bed. And hmm. uh, just a really great, uh, interesting product. They're actually based out of um, Washington, but huge Northwest um, yeah. presence. And so everything from that to very esoteric security software like Deep Surface. Surface,
2: yeah, it's right. Based out of Portland, yeah. Right. So this is sort of using some smarts, if you will. And James will kill me for not articulating it <laughs> better than that, right? But it's. It's about vulnerability, it's about dynamic environments and how those come together. And you've got um, you know, James and Tim, very deep, deep knowledge in the space and, you know, stood up a product company around that and have done extremely well. Uh, we're investors in a company called Rock Paper Coin,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, is focused on broadly the wedding industry. So they certainly have had some ups and downs from COVID to the return to now some economic headwinds but but where they they land in this is around uh, contract and billing and payments between uh, essentially wedding planners and vendors. And so Mm -hmm. one, they're awesome and they're deep domain knowledgeable in the space, but anything that's kind of related to payments and billing, like if you ever run a business, you know, that just sucks. And there's so many tools that are supposed to make it not suck. And so, but we like it because that's where money's flowing. And that's really where you, know, you can get you can get some attention from buyers because you're going to shorten days to cash collection or you're going to take out inefficiencies, it's kind of materially um, uh, realizable. Another company that we've uh, invested in earlier this year is a company called Field Day. And so that's out of uh, Portland as well. And uh, Eli and team are awesome. And this has kind of taken an enterprise software view to community engagement. So what I mean by that is, especially this gets back to your question of distributed teams, how do I get people together to have them, you know, get to know each other or build formative relationships that's not beer and pizza, right? I mean, that's a, yeah. that's, a that's a bad playbook uh, for culture mm-hmm. building. Um, and what they're doing is they're helping through software companies connect to nonprofits and organize volunteer projects, right? You mm-hmm. Eli spent a lot of time at Amazon. It was a big, big, um, um, even hiring criteria that people wanted some level of community participation and community engagement. So it taps all the right things, but it puts a lens on it that says, "Yeah, this is a this is a gap in the software stack that businesses have. This is beneficial to nonprofits. It helps them with retention. It helps them with re- with hiring. And so there's a lot of great um, things that come out of it. Even though it, by definition, it's kind of a business software play, right? Right. We um, yeah. just went into public beta, so it's hayfieldday.com if you want to check it mm-hmm. out. Plugged.
1: Yes, I think that's a good. It's a good cross section, you know. Um, so we're we're generally industry agnostic. There, there are some things that we just don't invest in because we don't have the domain experience to really know.
2: Yeah, like, um, like med tech or, or you know, bioscience, mm, that kind of stuff. Okay. The stuff we've looked at there, we're always kind of like, and I know this is a frustrating answer to get from an investor, we're always kind of like, if you could get like a lead that knew about that. <laughs> <laughs> Right, <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, because we really like you. Yeah. We don't invest in hardware-based businesses. We kind of have have um, okay. put, drawn a line in the sand on that. That's just, that's just related to margins. We like software margins. You know, hardware as a component of your solution can create, as you scale, you know, a whole sort of physical flow of goods thing that can be kind of uh, complex. We just stay away
1: from we it. we don't do food and bev, it just has its own particularities. So yeah. we've we've focused more on hard goods. And, you know, so back to Robert's point about this, you know, the entrepreneurs and what what they're building. I think that importantly, there, he, he said that there's so much we don't, we can't know. So we try to focus on what we can know. And a lot of that has to do with the founders and the teams, right? And we at the end of our di- diligence, when we get ready to invest, we have to believe that this company can generate a certain amount of revenue and a certain exit, right? So it turns out it's really hard to get to that first million dollars in revenue. Then it's really hard to get to three to $5 million in revenue. Then it's really, really hard and completely different to get from five to $10 million in revenue. And that's where companies really start to generate value because what, you know, and it took me, and you know, maybe I'm dense, but it took me a while to figure out those, the, that stair-stepping of hmm. generating revenue And then the multiples that were available in the market. And so we have to believe that a company can get to that 50 to hundred million and over threshold, which means X times whatever that revenue is, right? They've got a $10 million company. It's five X. So when, when founders are thinking about raising, you need to think about that in terms of like, if I take on this money, it means I need to generate this multiple for this investor or or something that not good is going to happen, right? So mm-hmm. there are things that we we can know, and we can know learn a lot about, you know, the founder, the idea, the market, before we make that decision. And fundamentally, then that's why we're available as as a resource, and our guild of investors is um, available for counsel, you know, in certain ways because oftentimes to get to that next level of scaling they they need some input
2: right you mentioned our our diligence process just as a a, another point on that so as part of that process we actually ask founders and founding teams like what would it take you to quit Mm. right and so that one in one that's risk mitigation because we're like okay it's like if this gets really hard right (laughs) you know, yeah. what happens here because our, you know, we really rely on founders to sort of power through adversity and, and do whatever, cause there's only so much we can do. And where that gets really interesting is when there's, you know, like multiple founders and they've never had that conversation before. <laughs> um, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an important <laughs> thing, right? Cause you, you know, your, your life can change, your life situation can change. You know, this, this may have sounded like a good idea, but now it's hard. And I mean, all those things I think are super important and we just like to have An open conversation around that, especially as it relates to,
0: you know, multiple founders around the table because they I I mean, I've never, I love that. What would, and that's, even if you're not, you're starting a business, you're not looking to raise money. That's just a great question to ask, right? What would it take for me to quit?
2: Yeah, right. But if
0: I don't get the first contract in the
2: first 30 days, am I willing to do it for, 60 days. Am I willing to do it for 90 days? Like when, again, I'm back to this notion yeah. of opportunity cost. And, and even in the, um, we have a lot of these open conversations, first conversations with founders. Like, I'm like, I don't want your pitch, right? I want to know why you're working on this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like You can be working on a lot of things. Mm. Um, and this is always interesting when, when, when sometimes when founders, like, well, I don't want to share broadly what I'm working on. Like, I, I get that, but like, The best people are already working on their own things. They're not going to hear your thing and say, oh, I'm going to drop what I'm doing and work on that. Yeah. Right. And the Mm -hmm. folks that pick up and work on something that you're working on, not saying you wouldn't need to worry
0: about it, but they're probably not the best people because they're not already working on something. Totally. And a couple more things before we go. I've always wanted to ask this is you know, I love how you say you're, you're Oregon first, but Pacific Northwest interested or whatever <laughs> you put it. Is there so, something about founders in the Pacific Northwest you find unique compared to other regions or or maybe not? But I, I feel like, you know, I get a chance to talk to a lot of people and there's always something uh, about folks here in this region that I find a little different than other people I've talked to in other parts of the country, whether they just, sometimes it's more optimism i found maybe not maybe it's just the profile of mm-hmm. the founders in general because i'm talking to them but is there something you know founders from this part of the world that just they they have this unique advantage or or different mindset yeah i, I think um, there's a lot of builders
2: right builders. and yeah. so it, and you got to be a bit of a dreamer because you get you know, back to this you got to be an optimist but there's mm-hmm. a pragmatism which is like, okay, I'm going to build this thing. I'm going to do this thing. And here's how I'm, I'm going to do it. Not I'm just going to go whip the hype cycle up um, mm-hmm. and up markets. That hype cycle can certainly benefit you. And in down markets, I think it comes home to roost. Yeah. I, I think that, I think that there's a, there's a, There's, there's no shortage of innovation and creativity. I think creativity is a big part of what, what, what powers this region as well. It's a lot of the reason that we have a defined investment thesis around consumer brands called elevated consumer experiences because this region is a maker region. People make, Mm -hmm. right? And then it's sort of sifting and sorting those that are, we, that we believe will be breakout brands, right? That can build these brand platforms beyond that. Yeah, I, I think, I think that's, I think. That. I mean, even, you know, we talked about, you know, we, we share, you know, Fritz Brumder as a, as a, as a, as a yeah. con- previous guest on the show. And I think he's a really good example, right, of a very methodical, very wicked,
0: smart uh, builder. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, Robert and Julie, thank you so much for spending time. I think for founders, I think this is just, like I said, you're dropping knowledge. I think it's important for them to know this that they didn't know already. So where can people find just more about you two or your, the Cascade and your Brilliant. portfolio companies? That's-
1: Our LinkedIn profiles are a great place to go and cascadeseedfund.com.
2: But the disclaimer is, I really am bad at LinkedIn messaging. So please don't send me a LinkedIn message. (laughs) Like I did to you, but you didn't respond
0: (laughs) eventually. (laughs) Uh,
2: Yeah, yeah, like I said, uh, cascadeseedfund.com is where you learn about this. That's where if you've you've got something you want to share with us, easy way to upload a deck, answer a few questions, won't take a ton of time. We will get back to you.
1: Well, and you... You also talked about optimism, just one last point. So I think b- being an entrepreneur is a, l- a little bit about waking up every day with a smile on your face and terror in your heart, right? Mm. It's a creative effort like Robert talked about. And I think um, that's where some of the optimism comes in is that you have to believe. you have a, You have to have enough humility to believe that you can do it. You have to have enough hubris to believe that you can do it, right? So there's that, there's an excitement to it and there's an optimism to it in order to you know, make a difference and make some money.
0: The PDX Executive Podcast is a production of ThatCast, a Portland, Oregon podcast agency that partners with brands to create custom podcasts. You can learn more at thatcast.com. And please take a moment to subscribe and rate the podcast as well.